Welcome to The World As You'll Know It. I'm your host, Kurt Anderson. We're discussing the future. This season, the shape of things to come specifically as a result of technology. In 20th century popular culture, artificial intelligence was technology personified. HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, the replicants in Blade Runner, the androids in Terminator. In other words, just scary. But real-life AI, as it's now actually emerging, differently scary. And also, maybe, a boon for humankind. My guest today is Genevieve Bell. Genevieve is an anthropologist, founding director of the School of Cybernetics at the Australian National University, and a vice president and senior fellow at Intel. So she's got a hands-on, real-world understanding of digital technologies. And our conversation today is really about how we as people and societies deal with technological change. Genevieve, welcome to the world as you'll know it. Thank you, Kurt. It's great to be here. So you are an anthropologist who runs a computer science graduate school, a scholar who for most of your career so far worked in the private sector at Intel, an Australian who spent half your life in America. You you are the very uh, definition of not driving in one lane. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm the classic insider-outsider in that regard, aren't I? Seems like it. Listen, I think that's a nice way to live your life. Uh, there's something about having been able to be not necessarily of the places I've been in. It gives you both a way of thinking about those places and seeing them a little bit, I think, more for what they are. But it's also been a... Uh, not a privilege exactly, but an interesting kind of adventure. Can I give you the the line that has been banging around in my head about it recently, though? So Norbert Wiener, who was a professor of computing and robotics at MIT for many years, back in 1950, he was kind of contemplating the future of many things, I think. And he wrote a line where he said he thought in the future the poets would need to be engineers or the engineers would need to be poets. And while I don't agree with the orbit, I'd love it to have been and. There's something really nice for me about that sort of transformational state. So you, one of your books uh, that you co-wrote came out a decade ago. It's called Divining a Digital Future, which I found fascinating in many ways, including that it seemed so much of it was a response to this article that I'd never read from 20 years earlier called The Computer of the 21st Century by this uh uh, digital pioneer at Xerox Park, I guess who ran Xerox Park or one one of the guys there. And it begins, the most profound technologies are those that disappear. Great first line. And, and I want you to explain to our listeners what he meant by that. Absolutely. So the pioneer was a man named Mark Weiser. He was one of the kind of people who sit between those moments of first computing and now. And back in the 1980s, and when computing became so ubiquitous, it stopped being the thing that sat on our desks, <laughs> the thing we visited, and became a thing that was just embedded in the fabric of life. And he was imagining a world where computing, in his words, disappeared. Now, of course, wonderfully enough, when he was writing that piece, he couldn't have imagined in some ways mobile phones, and indeed he didn't. Uh, he didn't quite envisage IoT or the Internet of Things the way it has become instantiated. But he was very interested in this idea that the price point of computing would continue to drop, the size of computing objects would continue to drop, and the range of things they could do would just mean they'd disappear into the world. And he called that state ubiquitous computing. And it was less a technical 
vision in some ways than a research agenda. And in that way, it's very akin to what happened back in the 50s when people were first talking about AI, right, artificial intelligence. It wasn't a technology then either. It was a research direction. And so for Mark and his colleagues, that they imagined a world where computing would power everything, but you didn't need to think about it. So it wasn't that you'd go to a screen and touch something or type in a password or click your mouse and, you know, something mysterious would happen. He just imagined that it would work. And in this article, he has this uh, wonderful scenario he begins with about someone waking up in an American suburb and sort of the windows opening up and the weather being kind of already clear and going to a kitchen and having a coffee machine anticipate your arrival and making coffee and going on your way to work and having the traffic kind of move around you and knowing where the traffic was going to be and knowing where the parking place was and sort of knowing what was going on in this very ambient distribution of information. What's, of course, fascinating is most of those things came to pass. We would recognize them now as being the world we live in. Although, I mean, there was something to it reading it. I remember 1991 being so full of what seems in some measure naive optimism and utopianism about the digital future. And there was a little bit of that Disneyland, uh, World's Fair, and the future is like this about his vision. Oh, absolutely. And for me, the kind of the contrasting piece is always both, you know, William Gibson's line, which I do love about the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed, which is invitation and provocation, right? If you kind of say, well, if it's already here, where is it? And how would I know that was the future? And something about the fact, too, that Mark's scenario there and the research agenda that unfolds around it is incredibly located in an American view of the world, in an American kind of idea of suburbia, and as you say, an American idea of the future that has been profoundly shaped by, well, everyone from Disney to Charles and Ray Eames and IBM's instantiations of world's fairs in the 50s and 60s, right? The future doesn't exist absent those kind of imaginings of it. So not long after those 1950s and 60s imaginings in the 1970s in college, I took this computer course to satisfy my science requirement. And we read about artificial intelligence, which was just a generation old as a concept, early days. And I remember the professor saying, when we get good machine translations, that'll be a turning point. And and he meant like in a decade from then. But finally, 40 years later, in the 2010s, Google Translate got really good. And and all the achievements of machine learning and AI this last decade have been amazing to me. But it's still early days, right? So the history of computing in the U.S. and the history of AI and the history of cybernetics are all the same history. So computers scale out of the University of Pennsylvania in the 1940s. That computer is huge. It's the size of a house and it doesn't do very much. It adds up and subtracts. does it quicker than humans, but it requires all the electricity in the world or at least six suburbs worth. Flash forward to the early 1950s and you now have more than one computer on sort of the landscape, but those computers are all still large and clunky. But the delta change in that sort of a first five to 10 years left people imagining that computers were going to become very smart very fast. And there were lots of conversations about what should happen with them. One of the conversations that was birthed out of those very conversations with some of those same people is the conversation about AI. So in 1956, uh, John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky and a few others, they write this grant proposal and say, we'd like enough money for a 10-week 
summer symposium. And we want to talk about how to so precisely describe uh, human intellect as to make a machine be able to simulate it. And we want to focus on uh, understanding speech, comprehending symbols and abstractions, uh, doing things currently reserved for humans and learning for itself. That was their kind of imagining. And that's what they said AI would be, those four things. And if you read the next click down of their grant proposal, you start to discover that their imaginings of what that might be are really kind of interesting. For McCarthy, he's like, well, you know, when he thinks things that humans could do for themselves, it wasn't about kind of manual tasks, it was conceptual ones. So for him it was... And who, who is McCarthy? So John McCarthy was a mathematician. Uh, he was a descendant intellectually of Turing's. He was uh, at that point a postgrad along with Minsky. They were kind of pals. And he went on to be hugely instrumental in setting up computer science at Stanford. Uh, and he kind of writes this piece where he says, look, it's going to be really great. You know, we're going to teach them how to play chess. They'll be able to do abstractions. But once they can play chess, his next follow through is they'll learn to play the piano. And in later years, he would say, if you could teach a machine to think, it would reason. And if it reasoned, it would believe. Minsky is clearly there as someone who'd been working on neural networks and who was really concerned about uh, speech and about notions of kind of learning and conceptual models. And then Shannon and Rochester are there from, you know, Bell Labs and IBM, respectively. What's interesting when you go and look at the historical documents about that event and you read the accounts of the people who were there, this is industry driving this agenda. This wasn't the academics, right? The academics go on to have enormous careers and be extraordinary figures, but the grown-ups, quote-unquote, in the room at that point are Shannon and Rochester. And their reason for being interested, so Bell and IBM, is that they are sitting on knowledge that computing is going to get smaller and more powerful on a fairly knowable cadence. Moore's law hasn't come into existence yet, but they can see that future unfolding ahead of them. And they are thinking to themselves, we have a lot of computing power, what are we going to do with it? And what is the story we want to tell and the research agenda we want to tell? Because AI wasn't a technology in 56, it was a research agenda. How are we going to galvanize the community to take on these technologies and do something more interesting with them than just more addition and subtraction and multiplication? And starting out to kind of work that one through requires an enormous amount of brute force, intellectual brute force, financial brute force, new sorts of computing. It was... Um, incredibly important to push forward what computing would look like. But, you know, it's also really clear. They think that a computer will be able to understand human speech, reason, do stuff that we do, and learn for itself. They thought that'd take a decade. They figured by 66 it'd be done. Now, of course, by 1966, it had not been done. No, but we had Hal in the movies by 1968. <laughs> well, and Minsky's one of the advisors for that that movie, right? So you have this really interesting interplay where... The computers of science fiction are being informed by the computer scientists of science fact. It, it does seem, I mean, is it fair to say that in the last decade, it's here now? We're, we're, it, it's fair to call what we have, we have not, it has not passed its own 1956 version of the Turing test where it can do all those things you said, but we, we are experiencing AI every day, are we not? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, part of the challenge with both that 56 vision and then the ways people came to understand it was that our science fact was so shaped by our science fiction, our imagining of AI being here as, you know, you know, it's either going to turn up and kill us or it turns up and like transforms everything. And the reality is, you're right, it's already here and some of it's deeply banal. You know, 
AI is running in the background, or a version of it, lightweight version of it, is running in the background every time you go to an elevator stack in a smart building where, you know, you wave a badge at it or you push a floor before you get into the elevator carriage. Inside the carriage, there are no buttons. You turn up at the right floor. In the background, all the elevator carriages in the building are rearranging themselves and anticipating your arrival. Same is happening in terms of how, in some cities, the relationship between traffic lights and trains and pedestrians and cars is already being run by a computational object that isn't directed by humans. There are lightweight AI stacks in all kinds of places. And I think, you know, the complexity there is our imaginations have been shaped to think that it would turn up in human form and be like a human. And, you know, you've referenced the Turing test and that somehow it would pass the Turing test. If you go back and look at what people thought they were doing, it wasn't necessarily about making humans. It was about breaking the tasks that humans do down into pieces that can be replicated by a machine, which isn't entirely the same thing. Not coherent intellect, but pieces of intellectual work or thinking work being done. So now, as predicted, computing is more and more ubiquitous and invisible. So people are, I think, less aware of of our radically transformed new world than they were after the, the previous modernizations and transformations. I mean, electrical power, we suddenly had all these power stations and nuclear reactors. And and when the telephones came, we had telephone lines and highways were built and airports were built. And and we saw that. And and now we we really don't. I mean, who who has seen a, a cloud computing center? And so we forget that it's there in a way. And and, and I, I'm not sure that's good because it's just out there somewhere, but in the cloud, whatever that is. And, and so we don't even have a sense of how everything has changed and how these gigantic decisions are being made. You know what I'm saying? So I think you're right. One of the things that's happened, particularly with these technologies, so the last sort of, you know, probably 50 years of information and communication technologies, is that the only time we really think about their function is when they're not functioning. So they become visible in the breaking, right? They become visible in the, wait, why doesn't that thing work? And then you suddenly realize all the ways you don't know how to troubleshoot it. So, you know, if you're of a vintage, as I, I am and I suspect you are, there was a moment in time when I could open the hood on my car, look into the engine block and have some vague sense of the functioning of the pieces. I opened a bonnet here in America, here in Australia, so a hood, and realized I recognized nothing inside the engine <laughs> compartment and there was no chance I had of fixing because it's all been nicely kind of, you know, covered up. And I think that's probably a reasonable analogy for what's happened with many of these other things, right? As those of us who grew up being able to troubleshoot things, there are places here where the breakage both makes the system visible, but also makes our inability to fix it visible too. And I think those are interesting twinned anxieties. Not only does the thing no longer work and you realize you are dependent on it, but you don't know how to fix it either. Exactly. The the world dependent on digital everything has become more and more one great big mysterious black box, right? And kind of fragile, it turns out. As you know, I think we mentioned here, I'm sitting in Australia right now. Um, and in November of 2019 through to January of 2020, there were remarkable uh, forest fires here in Australia, wildfires, that ringed the country. Probably 70% of Australian households were impacted in some way by fires in that period, whether it was the fires themselves, whether it was the smoke that followed them, or as importantly, whether it was the loss of particular kinds of services. So the electrical grid, 
failed in some places. The telecommunications grid failed. The information grid failed. The road structure stopped working. Water stopped flowing. Uh, and I'd have to suggest that some of the infrastructures of civic and civil society were like sort of a little bit brittle too. And what became really clear there is some of the ways we have been thinking about and building and anticipating the future relied on all this infrastructure that we thought was stable and then suddenly wasn't. So there's this kind of moment in the middle of one of those fires when people are trying to evacuate out of a place where there's only one road out and at the bottom of the hill where this road goes up, there is a petrol station and a gas station. That gas station uh, ran out of electricity. And when there was no electricity, you could no longer pump the gas from the bowsers underneath to the pumps. And so they went to a manual hand pumping system so people could get petrol gas to get up the hill in their cars. That was fine, except because there was no electricity, you also couldn't pay with credit card. You couldn't call anyone. You couldn't use your automatic payment systems. Most people didn't have cash. It then became this cascade of problems that even if you could get the gas from below to the car, you couldn't then pay for it. You couldn't work out how to manage that system. You couldn't work out because all the sensors in the gas bulges below were electrical. And it was really interesting how one single piece of the system breaking cause this cascade of other problems. And I think there's a way where as we have built systems on top of other systems, the resilience of all of those systems and the through lines become both more complicated and then you suddenly realize brutality. So the the fragility of the technology is also obviously evident in in ransomware attacks on computer systems that control whole companies or school districts or gas pipelines. But then there are the, the built-in problems, right? The, the existential bugs that are actually features of platforms like Facebook and YouTube with their algorithms that send people further and further into rabbit holes of lies and craziness and hate. Absolutely. Those are all the work of algorithms, so and I think, you know, it's important to kind of think through, for me, the delta difference between machine learning, algorithms, and artificial intelligence. We sometimes slip between those things, and they're not always identical things. So machine learning is a technique by which you can make sense of large bodies of data and find patterns in it. Algorithms are a way of automating that learning or automating other kinds of patterns. And then AI being some combination of learning systems. But you have to think that if algorithms are automated decision trees, or automated processes, which is what they really are, right? And algorithms existed long before computing. Uh, you know, anytime you've used a delicate cycle on a washing machine, you've encountered someone's idea of an algorithm. You know, they've made choices about what needs to happen in what order. In thinking about those choice and preference algorithms, so ones that, you know, they may lead you to radicalization on one path. For me, they seem to lead me to increasingly demented videos from Sesame Street, which tells you everything you need to know about me. There's something about what those algorithms are doing isn't just about the machine learning. It's about what are the choices that were made by the programmers to determine what activity should follow what activity. And then you have to ask, what is the metric that is being measured there, right? Like what's the what's the thing that signals the algorithm is working? And if for a recommendation engine or a choice-driven engine, what you want is for people to spend more time on your platform, then it's about how do I keep people here? How do I keep people engaged? And then you have to ask about how are people imagining engagement? How are they measuring good engagement? And let's stop there for a second because, again, you know, what you just said, there are so many choices made along the way that it didn't have to be that way. And one way, one large way I've always known but have realized more acutely is the choice that 
social media would be an entirely advertising-supported business and not any kind of subscription or other business model, which, of course, led to success, engagement being defined as maximize the number of minutes this person will be staring at this platform, which incentivizes the bad aspects of social media. Am, am I not right about that? Well, so for me, the piece that's always interesting about that is, and has it ever been thus? So the relationship between content production and advertising as one of its predominant business models is not new, right? It's not new, but it hasn't always, it's gone back and forth, right? Right. The 19th century, people paid for magazines and newspapers. It wasn't until the late 19th century that, oh, we can sell ads. And then you got TV and radio and, oh, it can be all ads. So it's gone back and forth, you know, and, and we have some revival of subscription. But all I'm saying is it was a choice. And now this ubiquitous, sometimes terrifying thing is all about this one form of making money that incentivizes some of its more toxic aspects. You could push it, push it one step further, right, and think about the following thought exercise, which is if you imagine that one of the driving forces of capitalism is consumption and the selling of things, that means one of the underlying forces of capitalism is to understand desire. What do you want and can I know it before you do or can I anticipate it? Can I... Or create it. Exactly. Can I trigger it? Can I know what you want before you want it or can I prime you to want something that I have? It's perhaps not surprising against that backdrop that a whole lot of AIs created inside uh, centers of that kind of underlying logic would of course be about engines of desire, right? Imagine then what it would be to develop artificial intelligences inside a different kind of logic. What might it be if your uh, governing rule wasn't necessarily capitalism, but say forms of social harmony and control? What would your AI look like if you said, actually, the thing we care most about is maintaining a kind of social stability? What might your object then do? Or what if you developed it inside a system that said, actually, a most important asset is uh, a well-regulated and uh, engaged society? And we measure that by engagement in civic and civil institutions. And, you know, if you then were building an artificial intelligence engine, what would it look like? Yes. So become the czar of world technology and do those things. <laughs> yeah. But I want to talk some more for the time we have left, too, about about what can be done to end up closer to the utopian end of things than the dystopian end of things. You worked at Intel for a long time. And so you, you have been in that world of people working at big tech businesses. How do we, society, nudge, shove, make people running tech companies manage and behave for the greater good? I mean, is it rules and laws and regulations? Is it breaking them up? Is it norms? Is it is it... What is it? How, how do we get there? Because they're private companies. That is correct. Well, you know, I think there's, there's multiple other ways of thinking about right, these things. Right, right, right. Um, so listen, I think it is as it ever was, right? It will need to be a combination of regulations, laws, and standards because that is how America and other countries have managed technological infrastructures and build-outs. It's also about who are the people in and around those companies and how were they trained? So, you know, 70 and 80 years ago, most people running most American companies had 
training in engineering, but in those days, engineering also meant they'd read philosophy. (laughs) They had had to know a little bit about the history of science and technology. They had frequently encountered uh, other kinds of discourses in their educational systems. Uh, They weren't kind of classic technocrats in that sense. They were actually surprisingly well-rounded. I think there's always a strong argument to think about as we look at companies to say, what does the leadership cohort of that place look like? Where did they come from? How were they trained? Uh, I think there's an interesting argument, and certainly one that's much clearer to me having been home here in Australia of late, that when we see more diversity in boardrooms and in leadership cohorts, we see different kinds of decisions being made. I think there's certainly a case to be made for how we better educate our regulators. Uh, so there's a little bit about, you know, how is it that we think through um, ensuring that the people we are asking to regulate are equipped to do so uh, in terms of both their own technical knowledge and their technical awareness, but also their socio-technical awareness, because this isn't just about technology, right? It's about the other pieces too. You and I share a uh an epiphany. Uh, 20 years ago, I was researching a novel I was writing about uh, 1848, and it was a moment of photography and the telegraph and and, and railroads, and I learned that time zones didn't exist until railroads came along, and you had to have time zones so they wouldn't crash into each other because it was a different time in New York as it was in Chicago. um, You have this great line, I think apropos that, which is to say, most technology doesn't end up in the hands of the people it was anticipated to end up in or doing the work was anticipated to do. Unintended consequences tend to be spectacular. That seems like an important thing as we think about the choices we're making now in technology and what the future will bring. But it doesn't mean we give up, right? Oh, absolutely not. My father has a railroad thing and I got taken to a lot of trains as a child. My grandfather worked on the railway and so I'm like, and I have a railroad kind of thing going on here. But it wasn't until I started thinking about them in the context of AI as a kind of a, where was the historic moment where you'd had a technology that took a long time to make and that, you know, when it started to scale, changed form and then required all these other things, right? And so I got really interested in thinking about the railways in that context because, you know, you go back and you go, well, you know, it starts as an atmospheric engine in Cornwall, managing mines. Then, you know, Watt gets a hold of it and turns it into something that sits in factories. And then you get Stevenson making the railway or the train at least. And then you get, you know, the Manchester and Liverpool making the railway. And that takes 100 plus years. And then to make railways happen, it turns out it wasn't just about having a decent engine. You needed to have carriages, you needed to have railway tracks, you needed to have people to certify safety and build, you know, train stations and sell food. And and so it goes on. And then you have to build a business model and then you need, well, it turns out what you needed was engineers and they didn't exist. You needed people who could certify the safety of the whole system, who could work out how to, how and where to lay railway tracks. Then you needed governments to make regulation. And, you know, over 40 years in Britain, they just keep passing legislation to regulate these railways. As more kind of problems appear, they create new regulations. But for me, it's this piece of law that gets passed in 1880, so 40 years after the railway experiments really started, that is the most shocking one. And it's the one about time zones, right? Because before 1880 in Britain, every town had two time zones. The town hall time, set by the mayor, who would stand in the middle of the thing and look up and find the sunshine. And railways that had to be set, as you say, on a fixed time, because they're sharing lines and publishing a schedule, had to be really fixed and rigid. Which is why if you ever sat in an English town and wondered to yourself why there was a clock on the town hall and a clock on the railway station, that's because the railway station clock was for the railway and the town hall was for everyone else. And in 1880 in Britain, they just go, enough already. Like one time zone and railway time wins, except in one place. And I found this out 10 days ago. King's College, Oxford, never changed to railway time. 
because as far as they were concerned, they would not have their time zone set by some newfangled technology, which kind of tells you everything you need to know. And probably some lower class. That is correct. We'll not be told by engineers what we should be doing because, of course, engineers aren't scientists. Uh, And apparently, same colleague tells me, that the white rabbit inside the Alice in Wonderland thing who's running around saying he's late, it's because he's got his clock set on King's College, not railway time. That's funny. Uh, So, but here you have this technology, right, that's all about harnessing the power of steam, that's all about being able to move goods and people and services in ways that have never been imagined before, that's all about making efficient and productive and exceeding human capacity and that ultimately transforms all kinds of things. It also transformed our ideas about time and it remapped the way we thought about the nature of the organisational underpinning structure of our days. And that one for me always leaves me asking the question, okay, so AI and steam engines, they're a, they're a nice parallel, right? There are lots of ways they aren't the same, but they're an, they're an instructive kind of, you know, historical story to frame better questions about the present and the future. And then I just keep wondering to myself, what on earth will the equivalent of the Railway Time Act be for artificial intelligence, right? What will be the moment where we suddenly realise that it's shaped something else, not the things that we set out to do with it, not the things that it immediately worked on, but, you know, what other things will it make possible or reimagine or reinvent? So a few years ago, you moved back to Australia and at the National University founded the School of Cybernetics to try to make people getting their graduate degrees in computer science and engineering think more holistically about these systemic issues. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so we started the School of Cybernetics on January 1st, 2021. Uh, For me, sort of wanting to establish a school of cybernetics was about doing two things. One was saying, look, it's very clear that the system is this kind of critical unit of analysis and that in thinking about those systems, we need to both tolerate a great deal of complexity and be willing to imagine that we're not just talking about technical systems. I think there's a piece for me about saying when we talk about systems, I don't mean technical systems. I mean systems that have to hold people and the ecological and the technical in dialogue and that you actually have to be able to account for all of those pieces and see them and make them visible and then contemplate how you might want to hold them in some kind of dynamic. And let's let's privilege people in those systems. How about? Oh, absolutely. Well, and cybernetics always did, right? It was about control of the systems. And so for me, that's very much part of it. And then the second piece, uh, Kurt, you have to tell a story about the future that's better than the world you find yourself in. And you have to actively break open the present to make that future possible. So you have to do things in the now to change the configuration of the world so that those stories you're telling aren't just stories, right? They're actually possible futures. You mentioned Norbert Wiener earlier, um, who is a remarkable figure in many, many ways. He's the father of cybernetics and a father of AI. Um, He, among other things, after World War II, where, where he was part of the fight, against fascism, uh, decided I'm not going to take government funding, I'm not going to do defense work. And then in in his book, I think, and right afterwards that he published in 4849, Cybernetics, he has this amazing line, Norbert Wiener, 1949, these new machines have a great capacity for reducing the economic value of the factory employee to the point he's not worth hiring at any price. Unless we change our present factory system, we are in for an industrial revolution of unmitigated cruelty. We can be humble and live a good life with the aid of the machines, or we can be arrogant and die. 
he had it right 70, almost 75 years ago, it seems like. He did, and the book he published uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, God and the Golem, is an interesting coda to that, where he is also quite clear that one of the challenges here is how we think also about fear, how we think about our relationships with the non-human, and what it means to think about the technical as being a bit like uh, the golem of the, you know, the Prague shtetls, a thing that we have brought into existence to do sort of meaningful tasks that we now set on meaningless tasks and <laughs> will eventually engulf us. He was someone who saw a very particular future and was energized around it. And I think, you know, his kind of notion about what would it mean if human labor was well, broken into pieces so small that a machine can be made to simulate it, was not necessarily a pleasant future. He was also someone who was marginalized by much of his community for his views. He was seen as being naive in some ways. Uh, he was not invited to the 1956 conversation about AI uh, precisely by those co-interlocutors because they didn't regard him as being uh, a helpful father of AI and, and robotics. But the, the the important point to me is that now here we are and we're seeing what looks to be by all kinds of expert predictions of economists uh, and otherwise that we simply don't have, won't have enough well-paying human jobs because of machines. So it seems to me that that, that is how this industrial revolution is, is perhaps most different is Oh, yeah, that worked out okay in 1800. Finally, people left farms and went to factories. Oh, yeah, it worked out okay in 1900. People left, kept leaving farms and they worked to offices. If it doesn't work out this this way, I mean, it, it seems to me we are really at a crossroads, right? Well, I mean, sort of an interesting way that you can unspool where we're at now that says what a surprise we're at a point of critical anxiety. You know, as you say, those waves of industrialization, on the one hand, we survived them all. On the other hand, they were very clear remarkable and painful transformations of society in which there were clear groups of people who did not come through it well. And just because we survived them and prospered a couple of three times doesn't mean that is always going to be the case. Well, and the prospering was not without its costs too, right? Correct. The railway that, you know, fascinates both you and I that polluted the planet those engines created a toxic cloud that took 100 years to dissipate and probably is still, you know, shaping our climate now. It caused the end of buffalo on the prairies. It changed Native American lives and polity forever, you know, and it was not without its inordinate costs. And you do occasionally think you want to go back and shake James Watt and say, hey, sunshine, I know you're doing this great thing here, but could you think about the fuel balance? That'd be great. And if it didn't require quite so much tree, wood, coal, that would be genuinely excellent because 100 years from now, you will have polluted the entire planet. There were choices made in each one of those industrial revolutions that feel like they are still manifesting now. And if we think about how much energy does it take for you and I to have this conversation? How much energy does it take to store our data and manage and circulate and curate our data and run workloads over the top of it? We're talking about meaningful percentages of the global energy market spent on doing those things. Let alone mining a Bitcoin. That is correct. Let alone mining of Bitcoin. Um, I, I have so many other questions and we're running out of time, but um, the, the pandemic, among other things, suddenly made it remote work mandatory rather than just optional thing that bosses didn't really trust. Do you think that this will be this kind of game-changing, accelerating moment for work and for that matter, perhaps for education? I think for work, gosh, the 
consequences of going remote immediately meant that some of the ways we had dragged our feet and some of the stories we told ourselves about why it wouldn't work are now manifestly proven not to be true. And so what organizations choose to do with that is really messy. You know, do you decide to say, well, that was aberrant because people didn't have a choice? Or do you say, well, actually, our employees have now quite literally voted with their feet. (laughs) So how are we going to sort of imagine what comes next? A hundred percent. I suspect the hardest piece in that might well be that our leadership cohorts in companies and governmental organizations in many places didn't go home in the same ways that their employees did. They were also quicker to be vaccinated. They were quicker to be able to maintain their lives and their lived experience of what got them to the positions they're in is being in the office, being around, doing that kind of in-person tacit manifestations of power. And for them, that's the only way they can think it works. And yet they have an employee base for whom that obviously isn't the case. And so that disconnect feels like a place that will unfold in complicated ways over the next multiple years. I have one last question. Your expectations for the next 20 years, the future, on a, let's say, zero to 10 scale, dystopia, utopia, what's your best bet in terms of how technology is going to change our future, how the choices we're going to make? Oh, listen, my my, my favorite futurist friends always say that making assessments about the future is a surest way to getting it wrong. Um, I think the best I can offer there is that for me, it's less about whether we tell dystopian or utopian stories and what those stories say about us now. It's more about what are we actively going to change in the present to ensure that we actually end up in a future that feels better than this one. It feels more just, more fair, more equitable, more sustainable. And so for me, what that means, my everyday life looks like educating uh, a bunch of students who are formally in my classrooms and informally in my classrooms to help them think about how to actively change the present. Are you more than 51% hopeful? More than 50% hopeful? Uh, I'm always more hopeful. I guess there are reasons for existential dread about technology. You would know all the reasons to have it, so... I'll take that as a good thing. I have seen the existential dread. I know the existential dread. I know the existential dread's history. <laughs> and I think it is not existential. I think it's it's not irrational to be fearful about the choices that humans make. Humans have done awful things with technology over the arc of our lifetimes and the lifetimes of our parents and grandparents. It is not irrational to fear it. But that doesn't mean it should stop us from deciding to make different futures. And so I remain optimistic about our ability to do that. Well, carry on and help us do that, or at least help Australians do that. Uh, Genevieve Bell, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was absolutely my pleasure, Kurt. The World As You'll Know It is brought to you by Aventine, a nonprofit research institute creating and sharing work that explores how today's decisions could affect the future. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of Aventine, its employees, or affiliates. Danielle Mattoon is the editorial director of Aventine. The World As You'll Know It is produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. On our next episode of The World As You'll Know It, my guest will be Stuart Russell. He's a renowned computer scientist, professor at UC Berkeley, author of The Artificial Intelligence College Textbook, and most recently of Human Compatible, AI and the Problems of Control. He thinks that people continue to underestimate the vast transformative impacts of AI in the near future. And this has been going on for decades, that philosophers come up with all these reasons why AI is impossible, and then those reasons get knocked down one after another. And all these predictions, like, oh, it's impossible for a computer ever to reach 
you know, the level of a human chess master, let alone a grandmaster. Well, you know, a few years later, it happened. Oh, well, it's impossible they could ever reach the level of world champ. Well, a few years later, that happened too. Well, okay, chess is easy, but Go is impossible. Well, that happened too. Now, all of a sudden, you've got AI researchers saying that they think AI is impossible. And that's, again, like, that's got to be a symptom of denial. 